Joshua and continue in it this morning, and we're we're at the end of chapter ten. We'll start in verse twenty nine of chapter ten if you want to follow along. But but here's the thing: I am a product of Western culture, and most people in here are too. What that means primarily for you and me is that I am a rationalist. There's very little in America that is supernatural, except in the movies. And there's lots of it in the movies. Well, you know what the thing is about the movies? I know they're not real. I know they're made up. So it's comfortable for me to have strange things like flying human beings and superheroes and whatever in the movies. I know it's not true. That's because I'm a rationalist. I operate. I was raised. I went to, to Princeton. I, I went to medical school. I was a doctor. I did things with science. I studied science. There's cause and there's effect. There's hypothesis and you test it to see if it's true. You use your mind. You see, your mind is your logical frame by which you figure things out and you put things in order. And honestly, what happens is that, is that I approach this book that way. So here's Dax. I'm looking at this Bible. And I'm over it. And I'm understanding it through my lens of scientific, rational thinking. That's how I think of it. That's how I, I do. I put the pieces together. I make a logical flow. I, 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 I'm, I'm an engineer in my thinking in terms of how to put things together in the Bible. My goal for us this morning is that you would begin to do the opposite. You would start to get your thinking and get it under the Bible. It's a scary thing um, because we, at the end of the day, don't trust <laughs> anybody but ourselves. But the call of the gospel is an amazing, supernatural call. And to get the Bible in context, to start to see what was really going on and what is true and start to have it shape your heart, that's what I'm calling you to this morning. And it's awkward and hard because it's so unnatural for me and for, I think, probably every single person in this room. It's just not how we operate. And yet the Bible is supernatural. Joshua is one of the best things for that because, because we saw last week, right? We saw in chapter 10 when things happened that, that the sun stood still and that's just not something that can rationally happen. So we started to get a taste of it. But today I believe it hits us in our face again as we consider God and why he does things and they're not our ways. And, and to understand contextually what's going on, you have to think about the supernatural. I'm going to say up front that... that uh, you know, it's, a, it's an amazing thing. We have in our body this resource of a man who studies this all the time. His name is Mike Heiser. He's a doctor of uh, whatever theology, Hebrew, Semitics. And he, he goes through these things. He could give you a better lecture on it than I can. I'm not here to lecture you. We're not going to do geography. I want you to get the feel. I want you to walk away practically with why it matters that we're supernatural. Okay, so, so what I want you to do is, and we're going to go around this particular issue that is striking and hard to me. It's this idea of devoted to destruction. The idea that God devoted people to destruction. That is nonsense in my mind. I don't understand 
in my logical thinking, why that could ever happen. So, so what I first want you to do is just see that it's there and to, and to feel it in the text. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read a lengthy piece of text to you that normally we would break apart and try and, and I don't want to break it apart. I just want you to listen. Just even if you want to close your eyes and listen. What strikes you as you go through? We're not going to dissect. We're going to have some big chunks. And I want you just to, to, to hear it. This text, I believe, as most of the Bible, is meant to be read orally. So listen, will you? I'm not going to put it on the screen. I'm going to read it to you. Joshua chapter 10. If you want to follow along in your Bibles, you can. But I'm interested for your own heart what hits you from the Word of God. So here we go. Chapter 10, verse 29. Then Joshua and all Israel with him passed on from Machedah to Libnah and fought against Libnah. And the Lord gave it also and its king into the hand of Israel and he struck it with the edge of the sword and every person in it. He left none remaining in it. And he did to its king as he had done to the king of Jericho. Then Joshua and all Israel with him passed on from Libna to Lachish and laid siege to it and fought against it. And Yahweh gave Lachish into the hand of Israel and he captured it on the second day and struck it with the edge of the sword and every person in it as he had done to Libna. Then Horam, king of Gizar, came up to help Lachish, and Joshua struck him and his people until he left none remaining. Then Joshua and all Israel with him passed on from Lachish to Eglon, and they laid siege to it, and they fought against it, and they captured it on that day and struck it with the edge of the sword, and he devoted every person in it to destruction that day, as he had done to Lachish. Then Joshua and all Israel with him went up from Eglon to Hebron, and they fought against it, and they captured it and struck it with the edge of the sword, its kings and its towns, and every person in it. He left none remaining. As he had done to Eglon, he devoted it to destruction and every person in it. Then Joshua, verse 38, and all Israel with him turned back to Debir and fought against it. He captured it with its king and all its towns. And they struck them with the edge of the sword and devoted to destruction every person in it. And he left none remaining, just as he'd done to Hebron and to Libna, its king. He did to Debir and its king. So Joshua struck the whole land. The hill country and the Negev and the lowland and the slopes and all their kings. He left none remaining, but devoted to destruction all that breathed. Just as Yahweh, God of Israel, commanded. And Joshua struck them from Kadesh Barnea as far as Gaza and all the country of Goshen as far as Gibeon. And Joshua captured all these kings and their land at one time because Yahweh, God of Israel, fought for Israel. Then Joshua returned and all Israel with him to the camp at Gilgal. Okay, that's the end of chapter 10. What strikes you? Strike you the same way it strikes me? God gives the people into the hand of Israel and they kill everyone. That's what, I, that's what I hear. Devoted to destruction and every person in it. Struck by the edge of the sword and every person in it it being some town area. This is the southern conquest. This is a, a, maybe we heard a summary last week, a bit of it, when they came in in the middle and they beat these kings and now they, they're sweeping down and they get all the south. Maybe we'll be different in the north. Let's inundate you with words. Close your eyes again. Think about it. Let's, uh, let's go. 
chapter 11, we see the, the, the similar thing. It's when Jabin, king of Hazor, heard this, he sent to Jobab, king of Madon, and to the king of Shimron, and the king of Akshpoth, and to the kings who were in the northern hill country, and the Arabah south of Chinneroth, and in the lowland, and in Naphoth, Dor, in the west, and all the Canaanites in the east and the west, and the Amorites, the Hittites, Bearsites, the Jebusites in the hill country, and the Hivites under Hermon in the lands of Mizpah, and they came out with all their troops, a great horde in number like the sand that is on the seashore with very many horses and chariots, and all these kings joined their forces and came and encamped together at the waters of Merom to fight against Israel. And Yahweh said to Joshua, do not be afraid of them, for tomorrow at this time I will give over all of them slain to Israel. You shall hamstring their horses and burn their chariots with fire. So Joshua and all his warriors came suddenly against them by the waters of Merom and fell upon them. And Yahweh gave them into the hand of Israel, who struck them and chased them as far as the great Sidon and Mizrahpoth name and west eastward as far as the valley of Mizpeh. And they struck them until he left none remaining. Joshua did to them, just as Yahweh said to him, he hamstrung their horses, he burned their chariots with fire. And Joshua turned back at that time and captured Hazor and struck its king with the sword. Hazor formerly was the head of all those kingdoms, and they struck with the sword all who were in it, devoting them to destruction. There was none left that breathed. And he burned Hazor with fire. All the cities of those kings, all their kings, Joshua captured. He struck them at the edge of the sword, devoting them to destruction, just as Moses, the servant of Yahweh, had commanded. But none of the cities that stood on mounds did Israel burn, except Hazor alone, that Joshua burned. And the spoil of all these cities and the livestock, the people of Israel took for their plunder. But every person they struck with the edge of the sword until they had destroyed them. And they did not leave any who breathed. Just as Yahweh had commanded Moses, his servant, so Moses commanded Joshua, and so Joshua did. He left nothing undone of all that Yahweh had commanded Moses. My point this morning is to not read all of Joshua. But isn't it striking? Can I summarize? It's like these people gathered together, all of them a great horde, so that God could, using Israel kill them. They struck them until there were none remaining. Hazor, the people were devoted to destruction. There was none left that breathed. That's kind of a remarkable statement, isn't it? They did not leave any who breathed. They say it again and again, just like God said is their thing. And so you get this summary statement in verse 16. Again, I'm just going to read it to you. Joshua took all the land, the hill country and all the Negev and the land of Goshen and the lowland and the Arabah and the hill country of Israel and its lowland from Mount Halak, which rises towards Seir as far as Baal Gad in the valley of Lebanon below Mount Hermon. And he captured all their kings and he struck them and he put them to death. And Joshua made war a long time with all these kings. There was not a city that made peace with the people of Israel except the Hivites, the inhabitants of Gibeon. See, nobody. Except those Gibeonites, we heard of them in chapter 8. And I, I'm going to pick it up and put this one on the screen. There it is. There's not a city that made peace. For it was Yahweh's doing to harden their hearts that they should come against Israel in battle. 
in order that they should be devoted to destruction and should receive no mercy, but be destroyed just as Yahweh commanded Moses. What are we going to think about this? What are we going to think about whole cities devoted to destruction? And my mind goes down certain paths. It goes down certain paths because I think a certain way. I think a certain way because I'm an American and a Western American. So I try and make sense of, of, of God. And I try and, and, and say, well, okay, well, I can, I can go before God. God hates who he hates. He loves who he loves, you know. Fortunately, I'm also a New Testament Christian. I know that God loves the world, doesn't he? Loved the world so much that he gave... Jesus. Okay, 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 I think I get it. Their sin must have been so bad. I'll throw my favorite sins in there. The worst ones, whatever I can think of. Maybe homosexuality, bestiality, crazy, terrible things, whatever I can think of. Though that, that, and then I, then I feel better because I don't, I don't do those or. But I also know that the Bible says that's not right. Because in Deuteronomy, you can look it up. Chapter 2, chapter 7, chapter 12. starts to go into things where he says, you know what, don't think that I'm giving you this land because you are better than other people. God says to Israel. It's not that they're greater sinners than you. Here's the problem for you and me. We don't get the context. The context is the text around this, which we aren't quite finished yet, but also also the, the, the understanding of the people it was written towards. And the people this was written towards were, were people probably in exile, probably this people after Israel had, 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 had broken and Judah had broken. And, and this mindset, this mindset of people who lived 3,000 years ago. What were they thinking? It's not me bringing my lens. It's me understanding this book, this, this word. And so what did they think? So one of the problems is I have no idea of the, spirit, of the supernatural. I don't, I don't really even care. I just want a standard by which what I know I can keep God happy and on my side because I believe that God is fearful and able to do these things. He's amazingly powerful. So just tell me the things I need to do to keep myself far away from whatever happened to those guys over there. And by the way, I want fairness and, and I would like control. And, 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 and so it's, it's, it's a tiny bit okay with me that those guys, if they weren't doing what was right, fine, God can strike them. I'll make sure I do what's right. The reason why it gets confusing and why I start to get hard and your hearts get hard for us is, is devoted to destruction was all of them. It doesn't seem fair. Women? Kids? It doesn't mesh with my idea of God was judging them individually for their little sins and so there's something going, going on here and I don't understand it and I get confused and I just drop it. And, and this becomes a sticking point for many people about Christianity. God did that? So why did it happen? I suppose that's what I want you to see. I, I suppose that I want you to get today a little bit more of the worldview of the Bible. We talk about a Christian worldview. 
our worldview is this, this worldview. We think the truth is here. I really do. What does that mean? What's going on? And the clue, I think, is right there in this text. It's not over yet. The chapter hasn't finished. Finish the chapter with me. And Joshua came at that time and cut off the Anakim from the hill country. From Hebron, from Debir, from Anab, from all the hill country of Judah, from all the hill country of Israel, Joshua devoted them to destruction with their cities. There was none of the Anakim left in the land of the people of Israel. Only in Gaza, Goth, and in Ashdod did some remain. Chapter finishes here. So Joshua took the whole land according to all Yahweh had spoken to Moses. And Joshua gave it for an inheritance to Israel according to their tribal allotments. And the land had rest from war. Finish, done, the war's over. But the key part was the little summary. There's the summary of the whole thing. The little summary of, of what they were doing. What did he do? He came and he got rid of, of these particular beings. Now, I'll tell you the truth. For us, this is hard because, honestly, I've just thrown like 25 place names at you and we don't know where any of them are. What about Lachish? What about Eglon? What about this? What about this? We get out maps. We start to study the maps. We start to get... It doesn't matter. There's, he's talking about the, the land of Israel that God had given Israel. It's there. The interesting thing you should see is that what's going on here in the text is God, Israel, is clearing out specific tribes. God didn't go out and say, okay, time to cleanse the world. And he went out against the Moabites and the Edomites and the, and the Syrians. God said, you're going to devote to destruction these particular areas. And here we have a particular clue as to why. They got rid of all these people called Anakim. What in the world is an Anakim? Does it mean like a European is it a Syrian? Is it, what, what is that? This is why I get discomfort, but, but I see it here. I, you know, I see that the Bible has an unabashedly supernatural worldview. The Bible presents God in the heavens with other heavenly beings, right? You understand that? They aren't all just messengers. You know, that's, that's how we, the, 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 the word angel really means messenger, right? That's a sent one. That it's angel. They aren't all messengers, these heavenly beings. They're rulers and powers and authorities. None of them are the creator. We know the creator God. His name is Yahweh. He's the Trinity. God, the Father, God, the Son, and God, the Holy Spirit. But Many of them we know. You know this, right? They turned against God. We say Satan. We say his host of people with them. Angelic beings. And this is an ancient document we just read. If you read some of the surviving documents from thousands of years ago, before the time of Christ, the book of Enoch comes to mind. You get a flavor for how people thought. They thought a certain way, and I presented it to you before, but I want to show you better today so you understand what it is that's going on. Take a look with me at Genesis chapter 6. I'll put it on the screen. Right? 
I, I think I made quick reference to this, but we're going to tie it together so you understand it. When man began to multiply in the face of the land, and the daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive. They took as their wives as they chose. Then Yahweh said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh, for his days shall be a hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Yahweh saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth. Every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. You see what's going on, right? I mean, we, we don't have a supernatural mind view, so we try and make this about Seth and Cain or try and figure it out that way, but it doesn't really hold together unless you understand that the, the worldview of the people at the time had no, no heart for these being men who were coming in with women and making children. These were supernatural beings. Heavenly beings cohabitating with the daughters of men. These are the Nephilim. And they, these Nephilim were not concentrated across the world. They were in one place. Where was the place? Where do you think all these beings, people, were devoted to destruction? In Israel. What's become Israel? I mean, look for a minute with me at when the, the spies went in. The spies went in to the land of Canaan. Twelve of them, right? There was Caleb and Joshua, but then there were ten other guys. And they came in, and Moses sent them to spy out the land of Canaan in Numbers 13, when they originally were going to come in. And they went and they said, go up into the Negev and go into the hill country. See what the land is, where the people who dwell there are strong or weak, whether they are few or many. And they told him when they came back, I'm skipping a bit so you get the point. They, they told him, we came to the land which you sent us. They came back. It flows with milk and honey. Oh, this is its fruit. However, the people who dwell in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. Interesting. Who are the descendants of Anak? The Amalekites dwell in the land of the Negev. The Hittites, the Jebusites, the Amorites dwell in the hill country. And the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the Jordan. These, you see, are where the sons of Anak are. They're in these tribes. They report to the whole people. They say this. They say they brought to the people these, these ten spies, right? They brought the people Israel a bad report. They spied out. They said, the land through which we've gone to spy out is a land that devours its inhabitants. All the people that we saw in it are of great height. There we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who come from the Nephilim. And we seem to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seem to them. You see what's going on. This is not, This is not. oh, there are people we don't like or their skin color is wrong or they're do whatever. No, no, no. They see something that, that reflects back on Genesis 6 where there were Nephilim and, and there, were, there were heavenly beings that had, had, had done these pieces with, with people and then the sons, that then the, the, there they are, the sons of Anak, the Anakim. This is the Bible. 
They've called sometimes the Rephaim. Sometimes they're just called Amorites because that's the area that they were in. And, and these all terms which refer to this, this anti-God activity, because that's what it was. God created mankind. Adam and Eve, he created them. And here in Genesis 6, you got to see people being birthed, created against God, against him, in their very creation. This is supernatural stuff. And, and, and so when God comes and he gives them land, it's right in the middle of this. He comes and he takes his people and he says to these other powers who are not God. And they, he says, I want to say something colloquially bad, but I won't. He says, in your face. Boom. And he takes out the very ones, the very ones that, 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 that were the against God people by their very breath. Absolutely in a system, totally and forever against God. It's a statement to these powers. Their giants are in no way able to stand before God's little nobodies. No way. Let me give you a couple more references just so you see it and we'll move on. This is from Amos chapter 2. This is way afterwards looking back. But see what Amos says when he gives an oracle from God to the people of, of, of Judah. He says, yet it was I who destroyed the Amorite before them whose height was like the height of the cedars, who was as strong as the oaks. I destroyed his fruit above and his roots beneath. Think he's talking about Goliath? Or do you think he's talking about something else? And the idea is something else. Because he says, as it, And also it was I who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, who led you 40 years in the wilderness to possess the land of the Amorite. He's talking about what we just read. They were giants because of what they had done and where they had come from. And this, this, was, this was evil and twisted. I gave one picture. Okay, don't take too much of this. But I put a picture up here so you could see. If you would take what archaeology says is the average size of a Jewish, Jewish man at the time, five foot three. People were a little shorter then. Okay, but that's the first picture. And all I want you to do is compare it to the last one. Because by the Bible's account, that's the size of the king of Og. We're going to read about him next week. He was an Amorite. And by the size of his coffin, and you take away a cubit, so it's figured he wasn't quite the size of his coffin. But if he was that size, he was 12 feet tall. Okay, here's what you tell me. Bah, dad, stories. I don't believe that stuff. I get it. I, I, to some degree, I very much get it. I'm with you. I've never seen a 12-foot person, but I believe the Bible. And, and now you understand, if you see that, if you were that spy who's in this first column, and you're running around and looking at people who were in the last column, it's not so far-fetched that you would say, we seemed like grasshoppers, and they seemed like mighty cedars. It's not just a height issue. It's that the height marked these giants, these size, these fallen ones, they marked where they came from. And it was a supernatural origin. And God said, no. No. 
That's what happened. Just like God said. Okay, if we get this mindset, it, we start to understand. If we don't, then we'll miss it. We'll miss, we'll miss the, the knowledge of this anti-godness and, and, and the supernatural that's out there. So it wasn't that these folks were so evil in some sort of behavioral way. We, we continue to see this through the Bible. The Bible has it in spades. There's the kingdom that God is in. There's the kingdom of, of God in his rulership. And there are other kingdoms. Israel and Judah, that, that's true. But there's also Assyria and Babylon and nations that, that aren't just worldly in some natural sense. They don't, don't, not just that they don't read their Bible enough. The problem is that other powers are over those areas. And what's going on in the Bible often is a spiritual battle in no small sense. And no way will God lose, but these powers don't agree with God, right? I mean, come on, think about it for a minute. When, when in the New Testament, when Satan enters Judas, you know that scene right before Jesus is betrayed? It says Satan entered him. Is that just some colloquial metaphor? I mean, that Judas had a bad day? No. No, Satan said, I can win. I can kill this son of God. I figured it out. I'll betray him through Judas. And he came in and then he sent Jesus and Jesus goes to the cross. Jesus goes to the cross with a great victory for us, but it's upside down because it seems like he's losing and the demonic forces have done it. They've, they're, they're battling against God, right? He's thinking, I can hurt God. There really is a heaven. There really is a hell. There really is spiritual warfare. And these things are way beyond us. And, and I'm going to pull, I, I know I'm gone too long this morning, but these things are so important. Let, let, me, let me just quickly. This is why you have these pieces in the Bible, even in the New Testament letters, things like this. Finally, Paul writes in Ephesians 6, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might, not yours. Put on the whole armor of God. You may be able to stand. How? Against the schemes of the devil. Because we don't wrestle, verse 12, against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities. He doesn't mean the police. Against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Do you understand? We slip right over it because, because we live in a hermetically sealed box of cause and effect, of logical rationality, of things that we, we see or things we understand that we cannot see. But this says we have no strength except Yahweh's. We have to have his armor. Our enemies aren't people. Our enemies are these spiritual beings and we are woefully unable. And so these verses, even in the New Testament, presuppose a particular worldview, one that we, we rarely think about and we're often denied by the very actions and the thoughts we have every day. It is a supernatural worldview. We are ants in the midst of giants. Our only hope is that the biggest, baddest one of all, and his name is God, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. His protection and his love. And I just want to take just, just a minute 
just just a minute because I don't want you walking away with a lecture about why it matters. Think with me for just two more minutes about why it matters. I want to highlight a couple of things. One is, one is, is that, that it, it changes how you think of what your job is. Your job is not to conquer for God. <laughs> your hope is in the, the battle being won by God. And that's why even in Ephesians, if I was going to go through it, I won't read the whole thing, but he, he goes through, he says, take up the armor of God, not your armor. It's not stuff you do. You want to put on God's armor because you've got nothing. So you stand there with With what? with this helmet of salvation given to you by God, with the breastplate of righteousness that's not yours, it's Jesus' righteousness that you put on, with the, the readiness of the gospel of peace, because you can't be pushed over. The, 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 the satanic forces may come and push you and say, you're not worthy to be here, you're not worthy to be around, and you're nimble on your feet because you know you have the good news of peace on your feet. You've got the belt of truth. But what actually happened is what Jesus did on the cross won it all for you. You've got all these things you see that you stand in and it's all about your holding fast to the one truth that you have. Jesus paid it all for you. What does that mean? It's not about your sin. Your sin is what was paid for forever. It's about your armor. It's about the truth of Jesus. So, so this becomes a really important thing for you and me because you have no control. That's the biggest thing. If you could live your life realizing, because we grasp after control with everything, I want to control my kids so they act the way I think that they should act. I want to control my experiences. I want to control. I want to have the ability to say, okay, God will give me what I want if I give him this thing that he values. And the story of the supernatural, as you start to see it, is I have nothing to offer God in payment for what I want. I am totally and completely in every sense a receiver of the gift of God. I'm dependent on Him. It is a huge humble pill that we live in. I live in the humility of grace. I live in the room that says everything I've had is given to me. I have a God who's gone before me and He's fought. What has He done? He's killed beings, beings that were a, an abomination to Him because He wanted to. I don't do those things. But I stand. How do I stand against these forces? I stand in the gift of his armor. I stand in the strength of his love. I stand in the hope, now and forever, that Jesus Christ has done it all. And when you watch your football game today, and the quarterback goes back, and he throws that long pass, and the receiver catches it, and I hope it's a Seahawk, in the end zone, I know why that happens. I know it happens because they practice it a million times. And the effort, and the leap, and the catch... And I soak again in the world. And it's, it's pushed culturally of me towards cause and effect and my own control by all that I do. You fight back. You've got to fight back. With just a push today, every time there's a touchdown, we'll hope there's a bunch of them, of, man, I've been so taken care of in Christ. And it's only because of him that I stand. It's nothing of what I do. Be supernatural. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this text. It's a difficult one, Lord, and I confess I don't understand all of why you did this devotion to destruction. I trust you. We trust you. Lord, I pray that we who are 
judgers and control freaks and wanting so much to bargain and be meritorious before you that we might be aware of our smallness, of the great powers that surround us, of your incredible protection day by day, not because of what we've done, but because of what Jesus did. Lord, may we hold fast. In Jesus' name, amen.